There once was a rich man, and this rich man died, and in the afterlife he found himself standing at the gates of heaven. And Peter was there allowing or disallowing access. So the, the rich man goes to Peter and he tells him his name. And Peter looks through the list and he says, I'm sorry, your name's not in the list. He doesn't know you. And so the rich man responds to him in a huff and says, well, it has to be there. Chuck again. And so Peter looks at the list again and he says, I'm sorry, it's definitely not there. He says, but you were a very wealthy man. Certainly you did some good things with that money. So tell me some of the good things you did with it. And, you know, maybe there's some mistake. And so the rich man says, well, there was one time in which a lame man was, was sat at my gate and I gave him two dollars. Now, this fact was true, but what the rich man left out was that he had angrily thrown down the $2 in front of that man and then told that beggar to get lost. And so Peter hears this and says, well, I mean, you had a lot of money. Surely you've done more things than that. And so the rich man thinks for a second and he says, well, there was another time in which a sick man was laid at my gate. And so I gave him a dollar. Now, this fact was also true, but of course, he also left out the fact that he had angrily thrown down the dollar in front of that beggar and then told the beggar to get lost. And so Peter hears this, he says, okay, I think I have what I need. I'll go to God and see what he says. So he goes to God and he explains this to God, and God says, this is, Peter, what you have to do. You go to that beggar that's sitting at my gate, and you angrily throw down $3 in front of him, and then you tell him to get lost. Now, if I were to ask you what the moral of that story is, what would you say? Now, my guess is that most of you would say is that, well, this man didn't show grace to beggars in life, and so he didn't get grace when he was a beggar in death. And I think that's a good point. And some of you would connect that the fact that he's sitting in front of someone's gate as the beggar. Well, when somebody was at his gate, he didn't show them any grace. And some of you might point out and say, you know, it really wouldn't even be appropriate for a person like that to be led into heaven, because what makes heaven heaven is the fact that people show each other grace. It just wouldn't fit. And I think all of that's right. Now, to be clear, this story is not in the Bible. But it bears a lot of similarities with the story that is in the Bible. And that story is the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, which is the story I want to talk about tonight. Now, Jesus, in this story, he talks about, he uses the phrase, the impassable chasm. And, and this is important because... In death, there is a huge chasm, an impassable chasm that no man can cross between this beggar and a rich man. But this rich man failed to show grace to a person that was right at his doorstep. Now, as the story goes on, it becomes more clear that actually there was an impassable chasm in both parts of the story, both in life and in death. But the one in life was in a chasm made only by the rich man's hard heart. Now, this rich man fails to show grace to a man on his doorstep, but in death, the world's reverse. Jesus tells the story in four scenes. In scene one, there's Lazarus, the poor man, in suffering. Meanwhile, the rich man is sitting in an all-you-can-eat buffet. Now, then, all of a sudden, the world shift because they both die. But in death, the rich man is the one suffering. The rich man is now the beggar. And the... Jesus has this in the story because he wants you to ref- get you to reflect on their situation. Like, will the rich man see what has happened and realize now as the beggar that, that maybe he, he didn't do things right? Maybe he'll have a contrite heart. And part of the shock is in scene three. Because we find that the rich man, his heart is contrary, not contrite. Right? You would expect at this point when he realizes he didn't show grace to this beggar, and now that he's the beggar, he'd seen in a new light. He'd show some level of forgiveness. But he does it. 
You'd think some, he'd have some level of introspection, maybe to ask for forgiveness from this beggar. He doesn't. Instead, he uses his many words to tell Abraham he, to order Lazarus, the beggar, around. And then in scene four, we find out that it's not just this rich man who has a hard heart, but even his brothers have a heart just as hard as he has. And so, and as the story goes on, it becomes clear that there's an impassable chasm with the hardness of the heart of his brothers, that even if there's a sign like somebody raising from the dead, even that will not change their heart. Now, I, I read this and I felt like I was reading this story for the very first time. I mean, I've heard this many, many times, but the more and more I read it, there were things that just stuck out to me. So I want to point out three things that stuck out to me and three things I want to get you to see tonight. And as part of this, one of the things that struck me was the rich man's attitude. So I started to read some research, and I read reports by psychologists, by sociologists, by some historians and one economist about how wealth and power affect us. If you get nothing out of the sermon, just get this. You should probably be more worried about how wealth and power affect you than you are. And the studies show this. So first thing that stuck out to me was, was the rich man's attitude. The more I thought about how weird this is. I mean, he's in the afterlife. He he did it wrong. It's obvious now that God has condemned him. And you'd think to see something, some little bit of contrition, but you don't. And part of this, I would say it corrected some of my viewpoint because... I always felt that people in the afterlife, when they were condemned, that there's kind of a repentance after the fact. We talk about how every knee will bow. And this got me to rethink that, yeah, maybe they bow, but they don't, they don't have the same faith that the people who believed in God in life do. And this is where the research started to come up, because I'm like, is Jesus saying here that wealth tends to affect us in a negative way? And after reading all this research, I found that that actually is indeed the case. The wealth does affect us in a negative way. For example, one study showed that if you take a bunch of people and you show them pictures of people's faces and you ask them to tell what is the emotion on the face, wealthy people, on average, can't pick out the emotions as well as people who have less money. There's another study that showed that wealthy people are more likely to cut off pedestrians on the street. Another study showed that people, when shown pictures of kids who have cancer, wealthy people generally have less of an emotional reaction. Uh, there's even one study that showed that wealthy people are more likely to take candy from children. <laughs> what I think Jesus is trying to tell us here is that wealth can mess us up. And I, I kept reading these studies, I thought, well, why didn't somebody tell me that wealth has this effect on people? And then I realized, well, actually, I think Jesus did. But wealth corrupted this person on both sides, right? In the life and in the afterlife. The second thing that stuck out to me is when you read this in context is that Jesus gives us not only a problem, he gives us a solution. And the solution is that you need to see yourself not as owners of your wealth, but as stewards of God's wealth. And when you shift your mind, if you read the research, they will say that we're not saying that every wealthy person suffers from this. There are people who are exceptions. But the people who see themselves as exceptions see it like this. They see it the way Jesus sees it. They don't see the money as part of their identity. And wealth, sometimes we get this confused. We think of wealth as a testament of our goodness when wealth is a test of our goodness. And the rich man, well, he, his problem was that he used God's money and because he saw it as, he didn't see it as, he, should, he saw it as his money. He didn't see it as God's money to be used to help others. And that, in Jesus' view, is spiritual embezzlement. The last thing was that 
I was surprised how much the context, if you read around, fits what Jesus is saying. Jesus talks about wealth frequently in Luke chapter 14 through 16. And that's, as I read back, I realized that this context starts in Luke 14 where he goes to a Pharisee's house over a meal. So you need to start reading there. And he doesn't seem to leave that place until Luke chapter 17, about midway through. Now, when you read them as a single unit, and you just ignore the chapter markers, you'll find that Jesus talks about wealth in these chapters several times, repeatedly. Jesus also refers to, in just these few chapters, he refers to animals being treated better than people no less than four times. Also, there was a weird connection between the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the story of the prodigal son, which I hadn't seen before. Now, As I said, these are told as part of a single meal. And that begins back here in Luke chapter 14. Now, if we go back, let's let's go back to Luke chapter 15. And you see the story of the prodigal son. Now, what happens here, and you're going to see a theme that extends not just through this story, but through through the next couple of parables. You have the son who asks his father for the inheritance. And that was troubling, particularly in that cultural context. And the father gives it to him. Then what happens is that he leaves for a far country. Now, probably in part because he would have been an outcast. I mean, he would have been known by this small community that he had done this terrible thing to his father. So he goes off to this far country. There, he burns through the money. He winds up poor. And he works for an evil man who treats his pigs better than people. And it's there that he starts to see the differences. He starts to realize that, you know, I once knew a man who treated even his servants well. And that man was my own father. And so he goes back to go home. And when he goes home, he he goes there planning to be a servant. His father runs to him, dresses him in nice clothes, and takes him back. And he makes his walk of shame into a homecoming. Now, there's some patterns here. Okay, notice here, we have wealth. He improperly uses the wealth. The wealth fails him. And then you have this, what will he do about it? This response. In this case, he humbles himself. He goes back as a servant. But then the next story, if you just keep reading right into the next chapter, we have the the story of the unjust steward. And here we're going to see the same pattern. So there's this rich man, and he has a steward. Probably for us, maybe a state manager or investment advisor, something like that. So he finds out that this steward has been misusing his funds. So he goes to him and says, he tries to find out what's going on. And he fires the steward. He says, turn in the books. This is one thing that I also, I hadn't, I realized I'd been misreading. He says, turn in an account, is how I always read it. That's not what the text says. He says, turn in the account. And I, I think now that he actually means actual accounting books. Because if you read it like that, the rest of the story makes a lot more sense. So he's like, basically, turn in your account books because you're fired. Okay, you don't get to be my account, you're my state manager anymore. And the steward's like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm too weak for physical work. I can't do that. And he says, I won't humble myself to be a beggar. And that's, that's different than the story of the prodigal son. And so he says, okay, I know what I'll do. The solution to my crime is more crime. So he goes out to some people. Remember, he still has the books. People don't realize he hasn't, he's been fired, but nobody knows this yet. So he goes to the first debtor. He's like, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of oil. He says, okay, quickly write 50. Quickly, he says, write 50. Quickly. Why is that to be quick? Because remember, he's been fired. People don't know it yet. He's only got a limited amount of time before people realize it. Also, he says, right. Right right where? Well, presumably in the accounting books, right? He still has them. So as far as anybody knows, he's still the accountant. So he does that. Then he goes to the next letter. He says, how much do you owe? 100 meters of of wheat. Okay, fine. Right 80. So he does these markdowns. His plan is that by giving people these large sums of money, 
that they'll help him out when he gets when they realize he's been fired. Okay. Now the master gets this back and he praises him in a certain sense. But I think the, the praise here is not a, okay, you did something really smart here. It's like, yeah, I see what you did here. You're not dumb. I'll give you that. Right? Once he sees what's happened here. And so the master praises him in a certain sense. Now, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus says there's a certain wisdom there. He's not praising him for his morals. He's saying that he got something right. Okay? But, and I say he's not praising his morals because in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd. And the word shrewd, it can mean wise, but it can mean in a positive sense, it can mean in a negative sense. But he says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So he never really says this is a good guy, but he says there's a certain wisdom there, okay? So what was the wisdom? Well, the wisdom, he goes on and he describes this. And by the way, I'll show you, he's talking about a lot about wealth because after this, he goes on and describes how you use your money matters. This is the, the prior two stories were all about that. And he says, you cannot serve two masters. And then he has the story we're going to focus on tonight, the rich man and Lazarus, which has a similar pattern. Also, Part of why he does this, remember, he was invited to a Pharisee's house. And he's, it says in Luke sixteen fourteen about how they were lovers of money. This is why he's telling him this story. Okay, but let's focus on, on what is the ethic here of this unjust steward. And I think what he's saying here is that the unjust steward was wise insofar as he used somebody else's money to get himself an eternal home. Now, the way he did it is what we here in this world call embezzlement. You're not allowed to do that, so if you're an accountant, I wouldn't recommend using this technique. But but look, if on a spiritual way, it actually makes some sense. He says, okay, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Remember, that's what the unjust steward did. He actually did go make some friends. Now, why did he do this? Because he knew he was losing his job. He knew the money was going to fail him. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, when it fails. He doesn't say money might fail. He says, when it fails. Because we don't get to take this with us. He says, then people will receive you into an eternal an eternal dwellings, okay, an eternal home. So he's saying there's a certain wisdom to this. And, and so in life, use your money. Give it to other people. That's what we talk about making friends. But realize it's not your money. It's actually God's money, right? You're a steward of it so that you have something to take with you in death. And this makes a lot of sense because I heard somebody say, you know what you never see? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Because you don't get to take it with you. Okay, so if you don't get to take it with you, it will fail. That's what Jesus says, when it fails. So take something you can take. And what you do get to take is you get to take when you go do good things that that is, is put into an account that you get to take with you. So there's a certain logic to this person's, what his actions. Now he says, how you spend God's money matters. So the unjust steward spent his master's money for an eternal home. And it winds up committing embezzlement. What we're going to find is with this last story, the rich man in Lazarus, is that he committed embezzlement because he didn't think of it as God's money. He thought of it as his own money, and he used it only for his own needs. And when asked for an account on it, the rich man winds up being lacking. So go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Story starts. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, this starts off with the exact same words as Luke 16, verse 1, the story of the unjust steward. And it says there was a certain rich man. The Greek words are identical. But notice something about this rich man. It says he was dressed in purple. He's dressed like a king. 
So this isn't somebody who just happens to have a big bank account. This is the kind of person it doesn't mind you knowing he has a big bank account. As one person wrote, he said, this is a person who celebrates with ostentation. Also look about the, the eating. He says he feasted, feasted sumptuously and every day. Okay, he ate. In that time, people didn't always eat every day. He ate, he ate well, and he ate well every day. Okay, so this is over the top. Meanwhile, Lazarus is a ghastly sight. Verse 20. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, whose body was covered in sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's tables. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. So this rich man is living it up like a king with an all-you-can-eat buffet. And meanwhile, there's somebody out there right at his gate who has nothing. Now, the fact that Jesus has Lazarus in the story is important for several reasons. Okay, it's, it's important for the first reason is that it highlights that the rich man's problem was not merely being wealthy. But if you look through Jesus and you look through all of the phrases that he says, you're going to have a hard time finding one that he says just having wealth is a sin. He doesn't say that. Okay, the rich, Lazarus is necessary in the story to show you that the rich man, his problem was not that he had wealth, but that he failed to use it. He had to step over someone, basically, to get into his house and didn't bother helping the guy out. So that's the first reason. Second reason is that you notice in, his, in the story, Jesus places Lazarus right at his door. He's very near. That's in contrast to the second half of the story in which he will be across an impassable chasm. And you notice here, he's at his gate. Okay, that, think about that. A gate. What is a gate supposed to do? Well, it keeps people out. right? It kept Lazarus out. He kept him away. And so it turns out, in a certain sense, there's an impassable chasm on both sides of the story because Lazarus was excluded because this man kept him out. But the chasm is only caused by his own hard heart. Now notice it never says the rich man got his money through dishonest means. It just says that he used whatever he had wrong. Now there's a painting by James Jenknet, and I think he captures this scene pretty well. Oh, and actually, I'll point out a couple things about the rich man's house. So this is a picture of a house back then, a rich man's house. This is not a, a standard house. But you notice it has this, right up at the top, you see that little table. And they call that a triclinium. And that's how p- people would eat sitting on the ground. They didn't have chairs like the way we think of. And so you can imagine somebody eating like that. But look on the opposite side. You see the doors entering that courtyard. So you can imagine Lazarus sitting out there in front of that door, maybe even hearing people eating. Remember what the text says, all he wants is a scraps. So meanwhile, so this is all happening. So James captures this scene in this painting, and I think he does a pretty good job of it. Now notice the rich man up at the left. And it says behind him, all you can eat buffet. Right? This is what the story is telling you. Like this man doesn't just eat well, he, he eats he doesn't just eat, he eats well. He's got plenty. And he's dressed nicely. This is a man who has a lot of wealth. And if you look real closely, you can notice there's a little cross on his suit. And I don't think James is criticizing Christianity here. I think what his point is, is that this is a man who's so deluded, it probably thinks, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, God wouldn't give me all these funds if I, if I didn't, wasn't a good person. And, and I, you know, I've started a synagogue and, and I give lots of money. You know, this is how people are. Sometimes they can get themselves convinced that they're good people because of their wealth. Meanwhile, look at Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus is low. And he's down there with the dogs. 
Remember, he just wanted the scraps. Right? That's, that's like what pets do, animals. They just want the scraps. So by placing Lazarus down there with the dogs, it dehumanizes him. Right? He's being treated like an animal, basically. Or maybe not even as good as an animal. And you know, it's got me thinking. When Jesus has the animals in the story, does he have the animals, the dogs, he says the dogs were licking his wounds, does he have the dogs there to increase the torment? Or is it supposed to be like the dogs are doing, at least the dogs are doing something good for him? So which one? Is it a contrast? Or is it supposed to be increasing it? The more I looked into this, the more I think that Jesus has the dogs as a contrast, meaning well, the rich man does nothing, but, you know, even the dogs show him more compassion. Okay, I came to this reason for three, uh, I came to this conclusion for three reasons. One, I looked up, why do dogs lick? And I mean, I don't have pets, but, and I looked it up and people said, well, dogs actually lick for comfort. That's one of the reasons they lick their own wounds. That's why you have to put those little, like, lampshade things on them when they get surgery. And I was thinking, I was thinking about this and I was reading this. Again, I don't have dogs, so I wouldn't know this firsthand. And one of my neighbors has, he has these big dogs, and they always, they always bark at people, but he, they're getting used to me because they say this when I'm walking. And the dog came over, and he was obviously happy, and he licked me right on the face. It was really gross. But then I thought, at least now it gives me something for, to mention in a sermon. But the, the dog was clearly happy. And, and I've had a, a couple other occasions like that. So the data is that the dogs actually lick for comfort. The second thing is that the word there for but, or might be translated moreover, is the word a lot. And when I look through the uses of the, that word, it usually implies a contrast. Right? So if you, tra- if you see it translated as moreover, that would be like saying, well, you know, it's, it's adding to the torment, whereas the word but implies a contrast. I would say I think it's more of a contrast. But this is the other thing. And this is the one that clenches it for me. If you read just in this context of Luke 14 through 16, what you'll find is that Jesus refers to animals other times in which the animals are being treated better than people. For example, in Luke 14, 5, he says, which one of you wouldn't save an ox on the Sabbath? Now, remember, the Pharisees criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And he's like saying, come on, you, if your ox fell into a ditch, you'd go get your ox, but you criticize me for healing on the Sabbath? It doesn't make any sense. After that, he talks about how, you know, if you guys had a hundred sheep and you lost a sheep, you'd go get your lost sheep. But you do nothing for the lost sheep of Israel. What about the prodigal son who's treated worse than pigs? I used to think that text said that he was being fed with the pigs, but it says no one gave him anything. Where the pigs are being treated better. And so if that's the case, then I tend to think that this fourth example is probably similar. At least the animals are doing something, right? Lazarus being treated worse than the way the dogs would have been treated. Now, if you look at that painting, you notice that there's another detail, which is that James has captured not only the first part of the story in life, he captures the afterlife part of the story. Because at the bottom left, you see the rich man in the second half of the story in the afterlife and torment. But you see Lazarus transported up to the to a plate in the afterlife. Now, notice he, he's up there with Abraham. But do you see that table? There's people eating there. Now, I actually think he got this right. Now, we're going to get to this in a second here, but I think that it's supposed to be that in the afterlife, Lazarus is no longer the beggar. Now, he's the one who's sitting at a banquet in the place of honor, unlike the first part of the story. It's a complete inversion. The other thing that's a bit noteworthy here is that Lazarus is named. The rich man is not. That's... 
So why is that? Now, if you, if I were to say, list off some people that are the kind of people we would all know outside of just our social circle, but the sort of people everybody would know across America, I bet almost every person that you would name was a wealthy person, like famous people. The true, the fact is, when you, everybody knows their name, they're probably wealthy. So you would expect, according to the rules of this world, that the rich man would be named. But he's not, okay? Lazarus, the poor man, is named. Which might make sense that if God's looking at it, God's like, I look at it totally differently. Right? Lazarus' name matters. The rich man, he matters less because he didn't act in a, in a proper way. And it isn't just that he had wealth. That wasn't the problem because Abraham is named in this story. And Abraham was wealthy, but he was known for using his wealth for as in kindness. Okay, so then we come to scene two. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now the text here, so it says they both die. It says that it mentions the rich man being buried. It doesn't say anything about Lazarus being buried. If you know the culture rules back then, it's almost certainly that Lazarus would have been buried. But it was probably less of a a show, right? You see when rich people die, you know, there's all sorts of cars and all sorts of things that happen. A poor guy dies, he gets put in a, you know, quietly put in a grave somewhere. Okay, that happens. But now Lazarus moves far away. Remember, he was right at his doorstep. Now there's an impassable chasm. Verse 23. And in hell, as he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. So now Lazarus is in a place of honor, and the rich man is in a place of torment. There's something that's a bit strange in here, depending on how your, your translations may render it. It may say something like, he was in Abraham's bosom. And that, I think, probably strikes most of us as a little weird. I'm going to bet that most of you have never said, you know, I'm really looking forward to one day when I'll be in Abraham's bosom. And you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just, I've never said that, okay? So, what's going on here? If you look at the Greek, it's a similar phrase to John 13, verse 23, when it talks about how the the disciple who Jesus loved was right at Jesus's, right, right up next to him. It's the same word, the word koipas. And what happens is, if you remember that when they would eat, remember they didn't have chairs, so you would you would sit on your side. And so if you were in the place of honor, whoever's the most respected person, you would sit right next to them. And that was a place of honor because you could talk to them and you could be right up next to them. And I think that this is what's going on here. Is he's saying there's a banquet. And this person, Lazarus, is in the place of honor. He's right up next to him, right at his side. And that would make so much sense that Jesus is contrasting a banquet in the life and then a banquet in the afterlife. And this also makes sense because, remember, this in Luke 14, it starts off, he goes to a Pharisee's house at a banquet. So Jesus has worked this in. And you'll find that banquets appear multiple times in this story. For example, or in this, this context, it, Luke 14, verse 5, is where it says Jesus went to eat in the home of a leading Pharisee. Okay, so there's a banquet of some sort. Then he goes on, he tells them, he said, don't sit in the place of honor at a banquet. And he's telling them this makes so much sense if he's actually at a banquet. He says, when you have one, invite the poor, because they can't pay you back to your banquet. Then he tells the story of someone who invites a bunch of other people to their banquet and are rejected. And then he refers to salt and seasoning. Makes sense if there's eating happening there. And do you remember the prodigal son? That story ends with a father celebrating with a feast. So 
I think that's probably what is going on here. Is in the afterlife now, this Lazarus is sitting at this banquet. But Lazarus now is afar off. He was right there at his doorstep. Now he's afar off. So this is the part where you think, okay, how is the rich man going to respond? The situation worked out totally differently than he would have expected. So how will he respond? What will his attitude be? And what you'll see is his heart is contrary, not contrite. Verse 24. So he called out the rich man. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Wait, send Lazarus. The rich man knows Lazarus' name. I mean, you, you, part of you think, well, maybe he just didn't know that this was... Oh, no, he knows. He knows his name. He didn't just not know. He knew and ignored. Okay. So Father Abraham says, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his water, his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am anguished in this fire. He says, I just want a little water. Just like Lazarus just wanted a little food. Right? See, now he's the beggar. When the rich man keeps talking, he will show his arrogance, and he shows his arrogance in three ways. First, he thinks he has the right to speak. So I counted up the Greek words about of how much each character talks in the story, and the rich man talks more than anybody. Lazarus says nothing. And it's not because Lazarus isn't there. The story goes on. Lazarus, is, he's clearly there. And now, if you read research on this, this is a known thing. The, you remember in Isaiah 53, it says kings will shut their mouths at him. Because you know what? People who are, in, who are powerful, they think they always have the right to speak. But in that case, even they shut their mouths. And if you've ever worked in big businesses, you know how this works. Because you ever had a situation like this where you have some VP or some senior director shows up to a meeting and he says, well, I think this is the problem and I think this is what we should do to fix it. But I'm open-minded and I want to hear your opinions on it. Well, who's going to open their mouths at that point? I mean, you already told us what you thought the problem was. You told us what the solution is. So everybody's like, yes, sir, that sounds great. Of course they say that. But when you hear somebody do that, what you know is that's a failure of leadership. He should have opened with the question. So this guy, he just was he won't stop talking. Also, point two, he doesn't show remorse. In all of this talking, he never says, I'm sorry. Or what did I do? Wait, he never says this. And then, you know what he uses his words to do? He uses them to order people around. At one point, he actually corrects the great patriarch, Abraham. And then he tells Abraham, he's like, can you tell that Lazarus to come help me out? What? Seriously? All those words and that? You still think you're just going to order this guy around like he's some slave? And Abraham was wealthy too. That Wealth wasn't the problem. But Abraham had kindness to people. You also notice he plays the race card, or the relationship card. This is Father Abraham. Father Abraham. And Abraham will respond to him using relational terminology. He'll call him child. Do you know what? This is rather self-serving. Yeah, play the race card now. Why didn't you play the race card when you had a poor guy sitting at your doorstep? Right? He didn't, didn't play it then. So he only plays this when it works in his favor. And relationships, as you'll see, will continue on in the story. And now here, Abraham has to explain the reason for this reversal of fortunes. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus likewise received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. The wording here, Abraham 
Well, he, Abraham does not say. So remember how you obtained and you achieved good things. He says that the wording is passive, how you received good things. What's weird is that if you read the research on this, you'll find that the research is pretty clear, is that people who are successful, they overestimate how much was from their own skill set. I'm not saying the skill set was zero, because it's greater than zero, but they overplay it. So there's one humor study where they had, they took a bunch of people and they had them play Monopoly. They took one person, the person in the study they called the rich player. And so what they did is they gave them obvious advantages, and they did it in front of everybody. So everybody knew that they were getting this advantage, including this rich player. What they did is they said that this rich person would start off with twice as much cash, the, they would be given twice as much cash when passing go, and they get to roll the dice twice. I mean, so it's obvious that this has been weighted in their, in their favor. And what the researchers are trying to do is figure out how would they respond to this. And, and I've seen the videos. They actually have videos of this. They recorded it. What happened was is that the, the rich players, if you will, the ones given the benefit, they were much more likely to start boasting they would make light of the other player's misfortune. They would hit the board. I mean, they would do, they started to just act poorly. But the weirdest part is afterwards they would say, can you write the reasons why you won? Not one person, not one, mentioned any of the advantages they had been given. They said, well, it was because of my, my clear skills. It was obvious the game was weighted in their favor. And even then they didn't mess, they didn't fess up to it. What's also weird is the study was replicated. So I don't take these sort of studies on face value. I look for studies where I think the science is good, and I read the I read the original reports, and then look for whether they've been replicated. And I read hundreds upon hundreds of pages about of studies on this, and the pointers were really clear: is that wealth does change your perceptions on wealth. Uh, like one of the studies was. They took these people, and there's a, a pretty good way to analyze this, where you can analyze what kind of emotional reaction people have to some things. And so they would show people these pictures of kids who were undergoing chemotherapy. I mean, this is the sort of thing that makes everybody's heart just change. I mean, you see something that you just can't have an effect. So they would look at these brain scans to see how much of an emotional reaction you would have. And on average, now remember, these are averages. So I'm not saying this is true for every person, but on average... Wealthier people had less of an emotional reaction. They just didn't feel the same levels of sympathy. And that's what the studies clearly show. Uh, There was another study, the one I was talking about with uh, taking candy from children, where where they did this study where they had the people sit down and they did an interview. Now, the people thought the study was the interview. The interview was unrelated. So sometimes they'll do this to try to trick you so you don't try to manipulate the results. So they're doing this interview, and they had this big thing of candy out in front. And they said, yeah, this candy's gonna be, you can, you can take some. We're gonna give the, whatever's left over to these, like, kids being treated for cancer. Now you'd think you'd have your hand halfway in, you're like, oh, I'm not, I am not touching that, okay? I'll maybe stick a 20 in there or something. But here's the thing. Wealthier people on average took about twice as much as other people. Which is just a weird response. There was another study where they came up to people and they said, okay, we're gonna, we're just gonna give random people some cash. And so they gave them some cash, and they said, oh, and by the way, there's a, there's a non-profit here. If you want to, you could actually give that cash to help people out. Now, you'd think that wealthier people would be like, I don't need the money. I'll just stick it in there. You'd be wrong. People who made $25,000 a year of income gave 44% more than people who made one hundred fifty to $200,000 a year. And part of this I read from economists who've studied it. There's a lot of data on this. And the truth is that when it comes to percentage of income, the poor are actually more generous as a proportion of their income than the middle class and wealthy people. Another study took, they did this study where they went out and they stood on the edge of the street in a state where you always have to give pedestrians the right of way. 
And I read the original report to make sure they weren't they were doing it right. And so what they're trying to do is figure out is could we predict whether or not the cars would stop or not? Now this is in a state in which you legally required to stop. And would it have something to do with the value of the car? And it did. And what happens is, and I even thought as I was reading this, I'm like, okay, but maybe wealthy people just don't pay as good of attention. This is what I'd be thinking. No, they actually, the study was a good study because they required the person to step off the street and only when the car crosses the exact same point and make eye contact. So they knew you saw. What they found was that for every $1,000 increase in value of the car, the chance they stopped dropped 3%. And I also, what was kind of funny is they said if you look at the cars that they called the beater category, every single one of those cars stopped. I mean, I, I, there's more. There's so many studies I could tell you, and they point to the same direction. And I know some of you know about this, but in 1971, Stanford did a study called the Stanford Prison Experiment. And what they did is they put out this ad, and they say, we want people to come do this research. And so you, you come, and it'll be some about prison. But they didn't tell you all about what they were going to do. What they did is they made this fake prison under Stanford. And then what they did is they they gave they separated them into two categories. One set was guards, and the other one would be the prisoners. And so then the, then the guards, they actually gave them sunglasses, and they gave them an outfit. And the sunglasses were there to kind of give them a little bit of anonymity. Right? This is why you ever notice how people who are really good, they get into a car, and then for some reason they act, they act a lot worse than they do when they're just talking to people one-on-one. And that's because that, the car gives them a certain sense of anonymity. So they did this, and they did this study. By day three, this is from their report, they said the guards were behaving sadistically. Now, they were trying to filter out people that were bad actors. So when they did these, they brought in all the people that had applied for this. They measured them for psychological stability, and then they tried to pick the best people that they could find of that. But by day three, the guards started, it says, behaving sadistically. Things got so out of hand, they had to cancel the study early by day six. Now, I'm going to play you a little video here. And this video is of one of the people who was one of the guards. And I do have some problems with the way this study was done. Like I said, I don't take these at face value. If you want to know the details, I've got a little appendix where I go through and talk about what parts of the study work and what doesn't work. But this part, I think, does. And with this mock guard, there's two things I want you to see. Now, this is one of the guys who was a guard. And the two things I want you to see is that, one, he says he didn't think he was capable of the sort of things he did there at Stanford. Okay, he says, part of me I hadn't noticed before. Two, is that he didn't even have any guilt. At the time, it wasn't until he says later that he looks at this and realizes that he had done something wrong. Did you catch that? I mean, he says in there, I didn't know I had this part of me. He said, I didn't even think it was wrong at the time. It wasn't until he looked back and realized 
that he had done something awful. When I was reading this, reading these studies, one of them was from a historian, historian Henry Adams. And he goes through a bunch of these of people in politics, and, and he marks out how they got worse over time. In some cases, even their family members recognized they got, they got worse over time. And he says, power is a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. There's a psychology professor who's been studying this for two decades. And he says, if you look at the way that power affects people, he said, people acted as if they suffered a traumatic brain injury. Right? There are brain injuries that can affect the way people sympathize. He's saying, but that's how wealth affects people. There's a neurologist who's done a detailed assessment on us, and he has 14 clinical features, which includes manifest contempt for others, loss of contact with reality, restless or reckless actions, and displays of incompetence. The point is the research says money is not good for us, not unless we control it, because it will control us. There's a painting that George Gross had painted back in World War II, and he depicts Hitler as the rich man. And, and I, I like this painting because I think he captures a lot of it. Now, you look at how he's got, he has the rich man sweating. Okay, that's the tip-off that he has placed Hitler into the role of the rich man. We oftentimes think of Hitler as somebody with power, but he was also a man who was wealthy. Now, I'm, if you look at the research on it, both are basically have the same effect on you if, if you don't control it. So there's, and I think Jesus treats it like that, too. Remember the rich young ruler, right? We talk about how he, he was rich, but... He was also a ruler, right? He had the, the two combo that is pretty bad. Okay, so he depicts here Hitler. He's making him out to be that rich man in hell. And he depicts him as committing the same sin as Cain. Now, if you look to the right of it, there's a body. Okay, that body, he's, he's trying to connect it to the story of Cain. Because Cain killed his brother. It was a lack of brotherly love. And, and I think that works, because if you look through the gospel... First John, for example, says there's two types of people. There are people who love their brethren, and there's people who live like Cain. It's no middle ground. Right? There is a way to commit bloodless murder. It's to hate. You don't have to stab anybody to do the same thing. Okay, and that's what the rich man the rich man didn't kill anybody, but he committed bloodless murder because he didn't love when he had the chance. Also, if you look at the top, you'll see that there's bombs being dropped. It's it's in a war. See what what Gross is painting here is Hitler in the exact world that he tried to create. But this is what this is what happened. Hitler Hitler tried to bring hell on earth. And he did a little part of that. And so he gets the very world that he wanted to bring into creation. And if you look, there's skeletons in the bottom, and it's supposed to be of his victims coming back to haunt him. Well, how can Hitler ask for grace? Hitler didn't show any grace, right? That's the world he wanted. That's the world he sought to bring in. And that's the sort of world the rich man was also bringing into existence. And you know, around the time I was, I was thinking about this, one of my friends had his father die. And his father was an atheist. And I know my friend, he tried so hard to change his father's mind. And we were talking right after his father had died. And he said to me, he said, but my father believes now. I know what he means by that. But you know what? Here's my reaction when I think about things like that. I keep thinking, but it's, it seems so unfair, right? So what happens? They repent now, so their flaw is not that they didn't repent, but they repented at the wrong time. I think that logic's flawed. And my friend would agree with this. Yes, his, his father may be a believer now, but 
His father doesn't have faith. The way you and I have faith in God. That's different. And see, my problem is that I think that it seems unfair if they repented in a certain sense at the wrong time in the afterlife. But I have no good reason to think that people who have rejected God at every turn in this life, I have no good reason to think that they don't continue rejecting God at every turn in the next life. I have no good reason to think that. And in this story, we see a rich man whose heart is unchanged. Why would I think that people's heart would suddenly change in the afterlife when they've had so many opportunities here? I have no good reason to think that. Yes, every knee will bow, but I don't think that all those knees bow because they're true believers in the way we talk about believing. And the thing is here is that Hitler is not fit for heaven. Not just because he needs to be punished, but because he doesn't have the right attitude. Right? What makes heaven heaven? It's because of the people that are there. Right? If you let somebody like Hitler into heaven, all he'll try to do is bring a little hell into heaven. It doesn't, he doesn't belong there. And if the rich man was beckoned into heaven, as C.S. Lewis put it, hell vetoes heaven. And in verse 26, it is shown that there's this great chasm now between this rich man and Lazarus. Verse 26. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. All right, so this rich man didn't help somebody right at his door, but now he wants Lazarus to cross this massive chasm to help him out. Right now he wants Lazarus near when he needs something. And then he, he talks to Abraham almost like he's a peer. Almost like, well, Abraham, you're, you're wealthy. You know we're not suited for life like this. So go ahead, send that Lazarus. Why doesn't he talk to Lazarus? He talks to Abraham. Order him around. It's just, it's such a problem. But it's not just this rich man. It's his brothers who have a hard heart as the story goes on. And we've seen scene four. Verse 27. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. Now I guess this is a positive thing. He wants to prevent his family from coming here. He keeps using familial language here. But do you catch this little detail? He says, I have five brothers. Five brothers. Okay, so that means his parents had six kids. If he had treated Lazarus like a brother, then it would be like his parents had had seven kids. And seven is considered like the perfect number, symbolically of the perfect number. But if he had treated Lazarus like a brother, he keeps using familial language. If only he'd understood what that meant, he would have treated them. And he would have been like his parents would have had the perfect number of kids. You remember in the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son humbles himself. Immediately followed, Jesus tells the story of the unjust steward, and that's the one thing the unjust steward says he will not do. He will not work, because he can't, but he says he won't humble himself to be a beggar. And what we see is this rich man and his brothers, they won't do this. They will not humble themselves either. Now, Abraham goes on, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. Now, Moses was also wealthy at one point. So wealth isn't the problem. But Moses was willing to give it up because he thought that there were more, there were things that were more important than that. So he says, listen, you got Moses. That's enough. But the rich man ignored Lazarus in life. He somehow thinks that they won't ignore him 
if Lazarus comes back from the dead. And here, then, he corrects Abraham. Okay, verse 30. Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he replied to them, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I remember reading from it was Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell was... Somebody said... What will happen if you're standing in front of God? You die and you're standing in front of God. What will you say? Bertrand Russell was a well-known atheist. And he said he would say, well, not enough data. You didn't give me enough data. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about the arrogance of this statement. If you look at the studies, even though there has been a recently a rise in atheism, it's still a small percentage. Okay, most people get this question right. And Bertrand Russell is going to say about a question that most people get right when he's standing in front of God where it's obvious he's gotten wrong and what he will say is it's your fault. It's your fault? Are, are you serious? Like, see the problem here? No contrition. And I don't think we should assume that people in the afterlife will suddenly show contrition the way they should show it here. I don't have any good reason to think that that is the case. C.S. Lewis once said, there are two types of people. There are people who will say to, to God, thy will be done. And there are those whom God will say to them, thy will be done. Right? This is Hell is not just a punishment. Hell is the logical conclusion from the way that you live. I remember an apologist saying, he said, if you live like hell, that's probably where you're going. But the opposite is true too, right? If you live like heaven and you treat people with kindness and grace, isn't that the message of 1 John? It's probably where you're going too, but on the other side. Luke 16 verse 13 says something that I think is noteworthy. It says, you cannot serve God and money. It does not say you shouldn't serve. It says you can't. What's interesting is that he says here you cannot serve God and mammon, you might say. And if you look at artwork, mammon is oftentimes depicted like a demon. There's plenty of artwork like this. Like George Watts, for example, depicts it like this. You see the skulls back there. So this is, this is mammon. This is wealth. He depicts it like a demon. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is saying this is a a literal demon of some sort. But you know what I wonder sometimes? I wonder if we were confused on this and we actually thought it was a demon. I wonder if we would actually be more concerned about the way wealth affects and maybe we'd actually treat it better. Now, I think personifying this as a demon makes more sense than you might think. Okay, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3.5. Covetousness is idolatry. So some guy who's doing idol worship to Chemosh or Baal, that's the same as covetousness? That's exactly what Paul's saying. Well, if that's the connection, then maybe we should be more worried about covetousness than we are. And if you look at the way Jesus talks about money, he talks about money in contrast to God. Almost like money demands to be served. Right, you cannot. It's not that you shouldn't. You can't serve both. You have to pick one. And so maybe the conclusion is that money is powerfulness. We should treat it as if it almost was a demon, and maybe we would be better served if we thought of the risk like that. Like, what if I what if I told you there's a disease going around? 
Okay, and if you get this disease, it will blind you to the emotions in others. You will lose some of that sympathy. It will change your personality. It will cause you to have a harder struggle to control your impulses. That disease actually exists. If you look clinically, wealth does that to you. If you don't control it, it will control you. And this is, I think, why Jesus is saying you cannot serve both. You've got to pick one. Now, some of you may know that if you look at the way money affects people who have gotten a lot of it, it's, a, it's not a pleasant picture. And you can see this a lot with lottery winners. I, I've heard this off and on, so I went back and I read a bunch of stuff about lottery winners. And if we expect that money has a tendency to harm people if we're not controlling it, then we should expect to see it with negative negative effects with people who win a lot of money. And we do. Like this guy, Billy Bob Harrell. So he won $30 million. Now at the beginning, he does a bunch of acts of charity with the money. So he starts off doing good things. But the money starts to affect him. His marriage then falls apart. One day, he was going to meet his ex-wife. And he went to his bedroom with a shotgun. And he ended his own life. He hadn't even had the money for two years. Two years. I mean, we, we talk about money like it's this good thing. I mean, he won $30 million, and the money killed him in two years. He told a financial advisor shortly before his death, he said, winning the lottery, he said, it's the worst thing that ever happened to me. These are not isolated stories. William Post III, he won $16.2 million. He was then arrested for assault after firing a shotgun at a man who was pestering him for money. He also hired his, his brother hired a hitman to kill him and his wife so that his brother would inherit the money. Now, to be clear, William was on his sixth wife by this point. What I also found weird was that how many times murderers were associated with winning the lottery. Uh, there's another story. One woman won $5 million in 1991. Her husband, who was a doctor, tried to kill her. He po- uh, poisoned her, or was poisoned by her husband. And there's another guy, William Hurt. Uh, he won $3.1 million. He, he, was char- he won the money. He was charged with attempted murder. It's this weird connection between getting a lot of money and acting like this. But again, that's what the research said. The research said that a lot of wealth tends to reduce impulse control. But here, William, in 13 years later, he died while living alone on welfare. He burnt through all the cash. He was living on welfare at that point. And then he said, this is a quote from him, he said, everybody dreams of winning the money, but nobody realizes the nightmares that come out of the woodwork or the problems. And he said, I was much happier when I was broke. Now, if I was listening to this, here's the question that would pop in my head. It's like, okay, maybe the problem is not the money, it's that these people didn't have a lot of it, and all of a sudden they got this big windfall, and so it was just too much for them to handle. Okay, that's what I'd be thinking. I thought that too, so I looked into it. Unfortunately, this trend even happens with people who are already wealthy. So like George Whitaker. So this guy had $17 million before he won the lottery. He won $315 million. It was a big windfall. And after he won the money, he started to have issues with women. He started to go to strip clubs. 
And actually, somebody at a strip club conspired to rob him and frame him with drug abuse. It didn't work out, but somebody had conspired to do this. He started drinking hard. He had a DUI. And then he got sued for gambling losses. And then his marriage fell apart. But the worst part was what it did to his granddaughter. So his granddaughter's in the picture. Her name's Brandy. And one of the things he liked doing was spoiling her. I mean, it was out of the goodness of his heart. But the generosity backfired because it attracted the wrong crowd for her. A friend of Brandy died of an overdose in George's own home. And three months later, Brandy was found dead under mysterious circumstances. And then George's own daughter was found dead, and she had been having drug problems. And this is George, a quote from him. He said, since I won the lottery, I think there is no control for greed, and I wish I had torn that ticket up. I'll tell you he's wrong, though. There is a control for greed. Because Jesus Jesus tells us not just about the problem, he tells us about the solution. Now, I'll tell you, I didn't cherry-pick these stories. I went through lots of these stories, and I was surprised at how much of an effect. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who win the lottery and, and don't fall into these categories. But I'll tell you, some of the people who were success stories actually fell into the problems before they actually fell into a solution. I remember one guy who he lost the money. He, he wound up committing adultery and having all sorts of problems. And then he became, he actually read the Bible and became a preacher and changed his life around after he'd lost all the money. He was a success story, but it was only a success story after the failure. What's weird about this is when I was reading this, I realized that growing up, I heard many a sermon about lottery, about what people considered to be a sin of playing the lottery. And the description was that it was a sin because it was a waste of your money. In other words, they were concerned that you may lose the money. But you don't have to read in this stuff. I think I'm more concerned that you may actually win. Now, as I said, this is the dark side of wealth, but there is a positive side, too. So I read some books from economists, and I was trying to figure out how is it that people use their money, right? Because there are people who are exceptions. So why are some people an exception to this? Wealth does not take everybody out. Let me illustrate this way. This is from, there's actual data behind this. So I want you to, I'm going to give you two people. Now, both people represent the average person. There's always exceptions, but it represents the average person who holds these views. Okay, so on one hand, you have a weekly churchgoer. So they're religious, and not just somebody who says they're religious. They actually show up somewhere on a weekly basis. And they strongly oppose government redistribution of wealth. So they, they don't see the government as solving the poverty problem. Okay, but they show up to church. Okay, so I'm going to have that person here. Okay, Then I want you to compare this with someone who does not attend worship and strongly supports government redistribution. Okay, if you have both of these people, which one do you think gives more? Now, we have data on this. Economists have crunched the number. The churchgoer, on average, gives a hundred times as much as the person the secular person who strongly supports government redistribution. And so what happened here is the churchgoer, he believes in redistribution, but not the government redistribution. He redistributes it himself. That's what the averages show. Now, what you might be thinking, right? if you're, in, if you're sitting in here and you're secular, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, but what do you consider a charity? Because they might look at this and say, you know, I don't really think giving to a church is charity. Now, you've got to be careful with that. Because as one economist is writing, because if you get to dump on their charities, they get to dump on yours. 
But let's just say, we go with that, okay? So let's just look at how much each of them gives to non-religious, secular causes. And still then, the religious person, on average, gives 50 times as much to secular causes as the secular person does, on average. That's despite the fact, by the way, that the average secular person actually makes a higher income. You know what this tells me? What this tells me is that Jesus' view worked. Okay, Jesus was able to turn this back. Right? Wealth will control you or you will control it. And Jesus tells us the solution. Uh, the, one of the economists I was reading was Arthur Brooks. And this is a quote from him. He said, The evidence leaves no room for doubt. Religious people are far more charitable than non-religious people. In my years of research, I have never found a measurable way in which secularists are more charitable than religious people. It's not just with money, either. He showed with giving of blood, of giving of time. He said he's more, they're more charitable in every measurable way. And he's been studying this for a long time. Now, what's funny about this is Brooks actually expected the exact obvious, the exact opposite. He expected that political liberals would be the most charitable. He didn't find that. He also, in that book, dispels other myths. So you, I've heard things about how, well, people in Europe, oh, they, they give more. That is not true. The closest nation to the United States is Spain, and that has the average person giving less than half of the average person in the United States. And and it goes down from there. And much of this actually is due to an increase, now this was a bit of a surprise to me, an increase in religious participation. So I've always heard, well, you know, the number of churchgoers has been going down for a while. Well, that might be true recently, but actually, historically, if you if you look at a longer time period, that's actually not the case. For example, if you look at religious participation, actually showing up to religious services on a weekly basis, only 17% of the of Americans during the American Revolution would count as religious. That was shockingly low. I thought it would have been much, much higher. When you get to the Civil War times, it increases to about a third. And now it's about 60% today. So it's much, much higher today than it was in the past. And so that's giving rights have actually gone up with those numbers, right? Because Jesus' view works, right? He's moving the needle here. And if you read the research, what they're going to tell you is that this effect that wealth has on you, it doesn't affect everybody, okay? So there are exceptions to the rule. There are poor people who don't have sympathy. And there are rich people who do. There's a, a quote that I had heard, and I realized that it was taken out of context until I read more about it. And it's from Rockefeller. Maybe you've heard this too. Where Rockefeller said, well, God gave me my money. Rockefeller was extremely wealthy. Now, so that, that's always what I had heard. What I didn't realize is the whole context. Because see, I, to me, it sounds like he's saying, well, God, give me my, my money. It's mine. It's not yours. Let me read you the whole context. He said, God gave me my money. I believe the power to make money is a gift from God to be developed and used to the best of our ability for the good of mankind. And Rockefeller actually had a history of charities all the way back to the age of 16 where he formed an, and he formed an organization to give his money away. Okay, so yes, he says, God gave me my money, but he says, and that's why I have to give it away. Right? That's the right view on this. What was also surprising to me was when I looked at the data, and this is, one of the comments was pointing out, he said that people who give, people who are charitable, they are 43% more likely to say that they are happy than non-givers. And non-givers are actually three and a half more times to say not happy. 
So there's like we were. It's almost like we were made for this. We were made to be charitable. Givers are also more likely to say that their health is good or excellent than non-givers, who are more likely to say that their health is worse. They also found there was one study who said that after people were donating their time, they they looked at them for physical health markers, and there's very objective ways to test this. And after people had been giving their time in these various charities, they found that volunteers experience. And this is in I only look consider peer-reviewed, legit research for this sort of thing. But after donating their time, volunteers had experienced depression relief, weight control, immune system improvements, chronic pain reduction, lower blood pressure, and reduced symptoms of indigestion, asthma, and arthritis. What's also weird is like, okay, well, which way is the cause? Maybe people who are in better health are more likely to give, right? So why would we say that being is giving causing you to have better health, or is it the other way around? And the research actually showed that it was actually the opposite giving actually causes your health to improve. But, but, but this makes sense in a theological perspective. God made us like this. We're made for this sort of thing. What's also surprising was that people who are givers, who give to charities, are more sympathetic and tolerant than non-givers. And what one person said, he said the charity here extends more than just, it extends beyond formal charity, right? Sometimes we mean charitable to mean you give up your money, and sometimes we mean charitable is that you're just kind to people. You try to you know, treat them better than maybe they deserve sometimes. They found that one study showed that givers had less negative feelings about than non-givers against people of different races, labor unions, big businesses, environmentalists, feminists, wealth, and welfare recipients. Okay, now this was, I thought this was somewhat funny. So basically, givers on almost every category had more charitable thoughts of other people, such as two groups, political liberals and news media, right? The non-givers did like them more. Okay, but on average, the givers are more charitable just with people. Overall, beyond matters of just money. And Arthur Brooks writes on this as economist, people get hooked on their favorite charities because these charities give them what they need. Giving doesn't make them feel better, it actually makes them better. Now, as I said, Jesus doesn't just point out the problem, he points out the solution. And the solution is that you need to realize that your wealth is not your wealth. You own nothing. It's God's wealth. Wealth is not a testament to your goodness. It is a test of your goodness. And that stewardship model, it reinstates a proper view of wealth, and it reinstates humility. And when you start thinking of it as your money is not your money, it's God's money, and you should start looking around to give it away, that causes you to have sympathy, right? Because you start, you're looking around for other opportunities when you can give it away, and when you do that, you get back an eternal home. Denzel Washington, he didn't mean this literally, but Denzel Washington was doing this talk. And in the talk, he was talking about why God, he said, has kept me humble. Because he, he said a lot of success, but he says God has kept him humble. And in that talk, he says the most selfish thing you can do in this world is to help someone else. He didn't mean that literally. But what he means by that is when you give your wealth away, you get paid back in something. And he means this from a a spiritual perspective. And that's what Jesus is telling you in the parable of the unjust steward. That the unjust steward gave away what was not his to get himself something in the future. And God's saying, you give away my money, it's not your money, 
to get yourself something that you'll have in the future. When we were, about the time I was thinking about this, Karen had said something that really struck me. And she asked a question. She said, how deep is the well that we keep drawing to offer charity from in this congregation? And here's my answer. My answer is that well is infinitely deep because it's not our well. It's his will. And the problem with the rich man was he could have used his wealth to, br- to build a bridge of compassion between him and Lazarus. But he refused. And so that chasm, that chasm that he made in his own heart, it's fixed in the afterlife. But we're on this side. So on this side, we have the opportunity to build bridges across these chasms. And I remember somebody saying, it was Martin Luther King, he said, money may be the means by which we live, but let it never be the reason for which we live. If you don't have a relationship with God, or if you have a broken relationship with your brethren, let me tell you that the solution is right at your doorstep. But it will not always be so. Because at some point, there is going to be an impassable chasm that no man can cross. And so if you need to make your life right, Please do so while you have the chance. Mm-hmm. Who can you?